Section 10 of L'Assommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. L'Assommoir by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Second part of chapter 3 and she called everyone to the door of the wine-shop to see the clouds as black as ink which were rising rapidly to the south of Paris. Madame Lerat, eldest of the Coupeaux, was a tall gaunt woman who talked through her nose. She was unattractively dressed in a puce-coloured robe that hung loosely on her, and had such long dangling fringes that they made her look like a skinny poodle coming out of the water. She brandished her umbrella like a club. After greeting Gervaise, she said, You've no idea. The heat in the street is like a slap on the face. You'd think someone was throwing fire at you. Everyone agreed that they knew the storm was coming. It was in the air. Monsieur Madinier said that he had seen it as they were coming out of the church. Lorieux mentioned that his corns were aching and that he hadn't been able to sleep since three in the morning. The storm was due. It had been much too hot for three days in a row. Well, maybe it will just be a little mist, Coupeau said several times, standing at the door and anxiously studying the sky. Now we have to wait only for my sister. We'll start as soon as she arrives. Madame Lorieux was late. Madame Lerat had stopped by so that they could come together, but found her only beginning to get dressed. The two sisters had argued. The widow whispered in her brother's ear, I left her flat. She's in a dreadful mood, you'll see. And the wedding party had to wait another quarter of an hour, walking about the wine-shop, elbowed and jostled in the midst of the men who entered to drink a glass of wine at the bar. Now and again Bosch, or Madame Fauconnier, or Bibi the Smoker, left the others and went to the edge of the pavement, looking up at the sky. The storm was not passing over at all. A darkness was coming on, and puffs of wind sweeping along the ground raised little clouds of white dust. At the first clap of thunder, Mademoiselle Romanjou made the sign of the cross. All the glances were anxiously directed to the clock over the looking-glass. It was twenty minutes to two. "'Here it goes,' cried Coupeau. "'It's the angels who are weeping.' A gush of rain swept the pavement along which some women flew, holding down their skirts with both hands. And it was in the midst of this first shower that Madame Lorieux at length arrived, furious and out of breath, and struggling on the threshold with her umbrella that would not close. "'Did anyone ever see such a thing?' she exclaimed. "'It caught me just at the door. I felt inclined to go upstairs again and take my things off. I should have been wise had I done so. Ah, oh, it's a pretty wedding!' I said how it would be. I wanted to put it off till next Saturday, and it rains because they wouldn't listen to me. So much the better, so much the better. I wish the sky would burst. Coupeau tried to pacify her without success. He wouldn't have to pay for her dress if it was spoiled. She had on a black silk dress in which she was nearly choking. The bodice, too tight-fitting, was almost bursting the buttonholes, and was cutting her across the shoulders. 
while the skirt only allowed her to take very short steps in walking. However, the ladies present were all staring at her, quite overcome by her costume. She appeared not to notice Gervaise, who was sitting beside Mother Coupeau. She asked her husband for his handkerchief. Then she went into a corner and very carefully wiped the raindrops that had fallen on her silk dress. The shower had abruptly ceased. The darkness increased. It was almost like night, a livid night, rent at times by large flashes of lightning. Bibi the smoker said laughingly that it would certainly rain priests. Then the storm burst forth with extreme violence. For half an hour the rain came down in bucketsful, and the thunder rumbled unceasingly. The men standing up before the door contemplated the grey veil of the downpour, the swollen gutters, the splashes of water caused by the rain beating into the puddles. The women, feeling frightened, had sat down again, holding their hands before their eyes. They no longer conversed, they were too upset. A jest Bosch made about the thunder, saying that St. Peter was sneezing up there, failed to raise a smile. But when the thunderclaps became less frequent and gradually died away in the distance, the wedding guests began to get impatient, enraged against the storm, cursing and shaking their fists at the clouds. A fine and interminable rain now poured down from the sky, which had become an ashy grey. "'It's past two o'clock,' cried Madame Lorilleux. We can't stop here forever. Mademoiselle Romanjou, having suggested going into the country all the same, even though they went no farther than the moat of the fortifications, the others scouted the idea. The roads would be in a nice state. One would not even be able to sit down on the grass. Besides, it did not seem to be all over yet. There might perhaps be another downpour. Coupeau, who had been watching a workman completely soaked, yet quietly walking along in the rain, murmured, if that animal my boots is waiting for us on the route to Saint-Denis, he won't catch a sunstroke. That made some of them laugh, but the general ill-humour increased. It was becoming ludicrous. They must decide on something, unless they planned to sit there staring at each other until time for dinner. So for the next quarter of an hour, while the persistent rain continued, they tried to think of what to do. Bibi the smoker suggested that they play cards, Bosch slyly suggesting a most amusing game, the game of true confessions. Madame Gaudron thought of going to eat onion tarts on the Chaussée Clignancourt. Madame Lerat wanted to hear some stories. Gaudron said he wasn't a bit put out and thought they were quite well off where they were, out of the downpour. He suggested sitting down to dinner immediately. There was a discussion after each proposal. Some said that this would put everybody to sleep, or that that would make people think they were stupid. Lorilleux had to get his word in. He finally suggested a walk along the outer boulevard to Père Lachaise's cemetery. They could visit the tomb of Eloise and Abelard. Madame Lorilleux exploded, no longer able to control herself. She was leaving, she was. Were they trying to make fun of her? She got all dressed up and came out in the rain. And for what? To be wasting time in a wine shop. No, she'd had enough of this wedding party. She'd rather be in her own home. Coupeau and Laurier had to get between her and the door to keep her from leaving. She kept telling them, Get out of my way. I'm leaving, I tell you. 
Lorilleux finally succeeded in calming her down. Coupeau went over to Gervaise, who had been sitting quietly in a corner with Mother Coupeau and Madame Fauconnier. You haven't suggested anything, he said to her. Oh, whatever they want, she replied, laughing. I don't mind. We can go out or stay here. She seemed to glow with contentment. She had spoken to each guest as they arrived. She spoke sensibly, in her soft voice, not getting into any disagreements. During the downpour she had sat with her eyes wide open, watching the lightning as though she could see the future in the sudden flashes. Monsieur Madinier had up to this time not proposed anything. He was leaning against the bar with the tails of his dress-coat thrust apart, while he fully maintained the important air of an employer. He kept on expectorating and rolled his big eyes about. Mon Dieu, said he, we might go to the museum. And he stroked his chin as he blinkingly consulted the other members of the party. There are antiquities, pictures, paintings, a whole heap of things. It is very instructive. Perhaps you have never been there. Oh, it is quite worth seeing, at least once in a while. They looked at each other interrogatively. No, Gervaise had never been. Madame Fauconnier neither, nor Bosch, nor the others. Coupeau thought he had been one Sunday, but he was not sure. They hesitated, however, when Madame Lorilleux, greatly impressed by Monsieur Madinier's importance, thought the suggestion a very worthy and respectable one. As they were wasting the day and were all dressed up, they might as well go somewhere for their own instruction. Everyone approved. Then, as it still rained a little, they borrowed some umbrellas from the proprietor of the wine-shop, old blue, green and brown umbrellas forgotten by different customers, and started off to the museum. The wedding party turned to the right and descended into Paris along the Faubourg Saint-Denis. Coupeau and Gervaise again took the lead, almost running and keeping a good distance in front of the others. Monsieur Madinier now gave his arm to Madame Lorilleux, Mother Coupeau having remained behind in the wine-shop on account of her old legs. Then came Lorilleux and Madame Lerat, Boche and Madame Fauconnier, Bibi the Smoker and Mademoiselle Romanjou, and finally the two Gaudrons. They were twelve and made a pretty long procession on the pavement. I swear to you we had nothing to do with it, Madame Lorilleux explained to Monsieur Madinier. We don't even know how they met, or we know only too well, but that's not for us to discuss. My husband even had to buy the wedding ring. We were scarcely out of bed this morning when he had to lend them ten francs. And not a member of her family at the wedding. What kind of bride is that? She says she has a sister in Paris who works for a pork butcher. Why didn't she invite her? She stopped to point at Gervaise, who was limping awkwardly because of the slope of the pavement. Just look at her. Clump, clump. Clump, clump ran through the wedding procession. Thorieux laughed under his breath and said they ought to call her that. But Madame Fauconnier stood up for Gervaise. They shouldn't make fun of her. She was as neat as a pin and did a good job when there was washing to be done. When the wedding procession came out of the Faubourg Saint-Denis, they had to cross the boulevard. The street had been transformed into a morass of sticky mud by the storm. It had started to pour again, and they had opened the assorted umbrellas. The women picked their way carefully through the mud, 
holding their skirts high as the men held the sorry-looking umbrellas over their heads. The procession stretched out the width of the street. It's a masquerade, yelled two street urchins. People turned to stare. These couples parading across the boulevard added a splash of vivid colour against the damp background. It was a parade of a strange medley of styles, showing fancy used clothing, such as constitute the luxury of the poor. The gentlemen's hats caused the most merriment, old hats preserved for years in dark and dusty cupboards, in a variety of comical forms, tall ones, flattened ones, sharply peaked ones, hats with extraordinary brims curled back or flat, too narrow or too wide. Then, at the very end, Madame Gaudron came along with her bright dress over her bulging belly, and caused the smiles of the audience to grow even wider. The procession made no effort to hasten its progress. They were, in fact, rather pleased to attract so much attention and admiration. "'Look, here comes the bride!' one of the urchins shouted, pointing to Madame Gaudron. "'Oh, isn't it too bad? She must have swallowed something!' The entire wedding procession burst into laughter. Phoebe the smoker turned around and laughed. Madame Gaudron laughed the most of all. She wasn't ashamed, as she thought more than one of the women watching had looked at her with envy. They turned into the Rue de Clery. Then they took the Rue du Maille. On reaching the Place des Victoires, there was a halt. The bride's left shoelace had come undone. And as she tied it up again at the foot of the statue of Louis XIV, the couples pressed behind her, waiting, and joking about the bit of calf of her leg that she displayed. At length, after passing down the rue Croix des Petits Champs, they reached the Louvre. Monsieur Madinier politely asked to be their cicerone. It was a big place, and they might lose themselves. Besides, he knew the best parts, because he had often come there with an artist, a very intelligent fellow from whom a large dealer bought designs to put on his cardboard boxes. Down below, when the wedding party entered the Assyrian Museum, a slight shiver passed through it. The deuce! It was not at all warm there. The hall would have made a capital cellar. And the couple slowly advanced, their chins raised, their eyes blinking, between the gigantic stone figures, the black marble gods, dumb in their hieratic rigidity, and the monstrous beasts, half cats and half women, with death-like faces, attenuated noses and swollen lips. They thought all these things very ugly. The stone carvings of the present day were a great deal better. An inscription in Phoenician characters amazed them. No one could possibly ever have read that scrawl. But Monsieur Madinier, already up on the first landing with Madame Lorilleux, called to them, shouting beneath the vaulted ceiling, Come along, they're nothing, all those things. The things to see are on the first floor. End of second part of chapter three. Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey.